True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. each other. Hopefully we can get through this worldwide situation as soon as possible and get back to a real normal, not this new normal. Okay, so tonight I bring you the Anita Cobby case and it's one I've put off for a while. If you've listened to my episodes on the Janine Balding murder and also the Lee Lee case, well this will seem quite familiar in that a group of monstrous scum are involved in the death of someone who was totally innocent and that the attack was totally unprovoked. Now tonight, not only the description of the attack is enough to make you sick, and I will give trigger warnings, but also the, the description of the perpetrators. That'll disgust you even more. Okay, tonight I will reference the Sydney Morning Herald. Anita Cobby, this is a video on YouTube, and you can get on YouTube. Anita Cobby, you thought you knew it all. That was from Network 7 in Australia. Also some court records, although they're very difficult to find. And Paul B. Kidd's book, Never to Be Released. Now this one I've used before on a couple of cases. I highly recommend having a look at this book of Paul's. It has many shocking Australian cases in it. And he, he does a great job. Okay, so this is one of Australia's most shocking crimes. And if you think it might trigger you, well, I will give warnings, but most of this is pretty bad. So first, who was Anita Cobby, or before she was married, Anita Lynch? Anita was born on the 2nd of November 1959 in Sydney, Australia. Her parents were Gary Lynch, who worked as a graphic artist for the Royal Australian Air Force, and Grace Lynch, who was a nurse. Anita also had a sister, Catherine, who was about five years younger than her. Anita excelled at school, attending Evans High School, where she was extremely popular. Anita loved the outdoors and going to the beach, and she was very protective of her little sister. The family lived in Blacktown, which is about 40 kilometres or 25 miles west of Sydney, in the typical fibro suburban house at the time. As a family, they would spend a lot of time together. They loved sports, music, and would go boating on the Nepean River, River, which isn't too far up the road. In 1979, at 20 years old, she was persuaded to enter the Miss Western Suburbs beauty pageant and the whole family got involved selling raffle tickets. She would go on to win the title, and they raised $10,000 for the Spastic Centre. She could have gone on with a beauty pageant career and modelling as she was tall, with dark curly hair, wide eyes, and she always had a lovely smile. She would light up a room whenever she entered. However, she decided to follow her mother's path, and she became a trainee nurse at Sydney Hospital. She would be accepted as a sister at Sydney Hospital in the microsurgery area. 
It is here that she would meet nursing student John Cobby, who was three years older than her. They hit it off straight away, as they had the same interests, with John saying he was punching above his weight. Yes. Anita took John home to meet the family, and they loved him. The couple would get engaged and married in March of 1982. Now, John was not only a nurse, but he dabbled a little bit in horse racing. He won quite a bit of money at one stage, so the newly married couple went travelling overseas for about three years. On their return to Australia in 1985, they lived in Coffs Harbour, which is about 500 k's or 310 miles up the coast from Sydney. Now, maybe the three years travelling together got to them, but they did separate with Anita moving out of their shared place and she went back to live with her parents. However, the couple did keep in contact by phone all the time and they were both distressed over the breakup. Now, this separation was only for about six weeks. In 1986, Gary Lynch had retired from the Air Force and Grace, well, she became semi-retired from nursing She would pick up a few shifts here and then for the extra money. So the whole family were back living together. Anita was back at her old job, nursing at Sydney Hospital, and it helped take a mind off the marital problems by socialising with her workmates. Now, she would work any shift. So at times, she would finish late, and when that happened, she would call her dad to pick her up from Blacktown Station. It didn't matter how late she got in, Gary was happy to pick up his daughter. At the end of January, John Cobby and Anita, well, they'd come to some sort of reconciliation and had decided to get back together. They spent the weekend up the coast and made plans to look at properties on Monday the 3rd of February. Tragically, this would never happen. On Sunday the 2nd of February, At 5.30pm, Anita had finished her 7am to 3.30pm shift at the Sydney Hospital and decided to go for a feed with her nursing sister friends Lynn Bradshaw and Elaine Bay at a Lebanese restaurant in Surrey Hills. And that's just a quick taxi ride or you could even walk up there. All three of the nurses had a great time. They drank a couple of bottles of wine and enjoyed a meal together. As it was getting late, Both Lynn and Elaine offered to put Anita up for the night, but she decided to catch the train home. At around 9pm, Lynn dropped Anita off at Central Station, where she could catch a train back to Blacktown. Normally, Anita would call her father from the station to be picked up. Why she didn't is not 100% known, but it's thought that the phones had been vandalised so she decided to walk the 35-minute walk to their Sullivan Street home. Stephen Hodson, 16, was watching TV at around 9.50pm when he heard a scream coming from outside. He raced out to see what was going on and down the street he could see a car, a Holden sedan, parked with its lights off and he could hear the girl screaming from inside. As the car approached him with its lights still off, He could see the occupants as it passed the streetlights. As the car passed, he could see three people in the back seat, the middle one higher up as if sitting on something. That occupant stared him out as the car drove away. 
Stephen tried to chase the car and his neighbour Dale pulled up in his car. Stephen explained to Dale what he'd just seen. Dale had his girlfriend in the car so she got out while Stephen jumped in and they tried to chase the car up the road. By the time they started chasing the other car, it had gone over a hill and they'd lost it. They decided to go back and call police, but Stephen's mum had already done it. Now in Paul B. Kidd's book, he tells this a little differently, and it may be different witnesses. He says that two witnesses, Linda and John McCoggy, saw the abduction, and when their brother Paul got home a few minutes later, they gave him a description of the car as a H.J. Kingswood. So he and his girlfriend Lorraine went looking for it. They went to Reed Road, which is about a five-minute or so drive down the road. Now, Reed Road, which is now called Peter Brock Drive, was named after the owners of the land around it, the Reens, and it was a notorious lover's lane. They saw an empty H.G. Kingswood, but that looks totally different to an H.J. Kingswood they had been told the girl was in, so they disregarded it. They did drive around to other likely spots for a couple of hours without success. Unknown at the time, this car contained some of the most disgusting criminal scum ever to walk the earth. And that was John Travis, Les Murphy, Gary Murphy, Michael Murphy and Michael Murdoch. The girl they had grabbed off the street was 26-year-old Anita Cobby. Now, we'll get to these five scum a little bit later on. John Reen, the owner of the property at Reen Road, was woken up by screams coming from the paddock. He didn't take too much notice as he thought they were just kids fooling around. And as I said before, it was a notorious lover's lane. So the noise John Reen heard wasn't out of the ordinary. On Monday the 3rd of February, John Reen, the owner of the paddock, Notice that the cows were milling around something, then they walk off, then they come back and mill around the same area again. Now he didn't get around to checking out what it was until the Tuesday morning. But back at the Lynch house in Blacktown, when Anita had failed to come home on Sunday night, now this didn't cause any real alarm as Anita would often stay at a friend's house after a night out in the city. But on Monday afternoon, Gary Lynch got a call from the matron at the hospital asking why Anita hadn't turned up for a shift. He suggested calling her nurse friends that she'd been out with, but the matron replied that she'd spoken to them already as they were at work and they were worried as well. Gary called his wife and she had no idea where Anita was and Gary then called more of her friends without success. Gary then called police and reported Anita missing. And out went a description. Anita Cobby, aged 26, thin build, 175 centimetres tall, black wavy hair, hazel eyes and a light olive complexion. Now back at John Reed's property. He decided to go out on a motorbike to have a look what was going on with the cows in the paddock. Now this was the next day. And as he approached the area where they seemed to be milling, he saw the body of the soon-to-be-identified Anita Cobby. He said that he could tell that she'd been tortured and was probably glad she was dead. Now, for someone to say that the victim would be glad to be dead, 
then she must have looked like she'd suffered terrible injuries. Anita was naked. There were no discarded clothes around. It looked like every scrap of evidence had been taken away. John immediately went back to the house and called police. It didn't take long for police to link the missing persons report and the body in the paddock. Police had taken a Russian wedding ring from the body and called Anita's parents and asked if she owned one. It must have been a sinking feeling when told about the ring as they were extremely uncommon at the time. The lynchers went to identify Anita's body and confirmed it was her. Anita's sister Catherine said that the ring looked dirty or rusty and the police told her it was dried blood. Catherine then knew her sister had not only died, but had suffered some awful fate. When John Cobby turned up at the lynchers' place, he said that no one could look him in the eyes. As with these types of crimes, the first person suspected is a spouse. John said he knew they thought he'd done it. As is the case, John was interviewed by police, and at first, he didn't realise he was the main suspect. John insisted that he had nothing to do with the killing of his wife and he said in a recent interview that police not only suspected him but they told him that he was the perpetrator. Now John says that the questioning from police consisted of them repeatedly asking him where he was before and after. They kept saying he had no alibi. They kept telling him he killed his wife. In the end, John said he actually believed he had killed her and confessed. Now, not the first time a totally innocent person had falsely confessed to a crime they didn't commit under the pressure of police questioning. In reality, John was so broken up by the death of his wife, he just wanted to die. He would go on to change his name and for a while his life spiralled out of control in a haze of drugs and alcohol. With police scouring the crime scene for clues and coming up with nothing, they were no closer to getting any leads which would get them a name. Anita wasn't involved with drugs, they had no murder weapon, there was no secret lover in her life and no real motive to kill her. On February the 6th, John Laws, who at the time was the biggest of all radio talkback stars in Australia, he read out an autopsy report that had been leaked to him. Now, this is just not a normal thing that's done. The report detailed the shocking injuries that Anita had endured. This brought on a rage in the general public. They were used to hearing about murders, but never got to hear the horrific details. And although this distressed the family to hear what had happened, ultimately, they would say it was necessary so that the public knew what was really going on in society. Anita Cobby's funeral was attended by all her friends, family and workmates. It was such a sad affair as she was such a lovely, kind and happy person, totally innocent, who had a life taken in such a tragic manner. On February the 9th, a reenactment by Constable Deborah Wallace now, she played the part of Anita Walk going home from the city to Blacktown. Now, this was to help with the timings of where Anita should be at what time to cross-match with witness statements. However, they first miscalculated the train that Anita caught 
And so the police report of the girl being abducted on Newton Road by Stephen Hodson was ruled out as being Anita. They just thought she couldn't be there at that time. But luckily, police found out that she'd actually caught an earlier train. And that meant that the reported abduction on Newton Road could well have been Anita. Now this started a chain of investigation that would ultimately end in the apprehension of Anita's killers. Stephen had already described the car and he was hypnotised and was able to remember the rego plate. This led to the report of a stolen car and the names of those who'd probably stolen it. Those names were John Travers, Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy. Another version of how they got a tip-off about Travers, Murphy and Murdoch was from several frightened members of the public that knew the trio had stolen a car a couple of days before the murder, had re-sprayed it grey and swapped out the mag wheels with normal ones. So police arrested Travers and Murdoch at around 3am in the morning. It was relatively easy to arrest these two scum as they were sleeping together in the same bed. They charged them with stealing the car as at this time they had no evidence linking the car with the killing of Anita. They also arrested Les Murphy in relation to the car theft. When Travers was interviewed and told of the Anita Cobby investigation, he said to the officer, and this is a trigger warning for about 10 seconds, okay, Travers said, I didn't slit that slut's throat. Travers didn't get bail as he was wanted for a horrific rape of a boy, his lover, in Western Australia, where he'd held the knife at the boy's throat while having anal sex with him. And here he told the boy, and I'll give you another trigger warning for 10 seconds, Buck, you bastard, buck, or I'll slit your throat. Murdoch and Les Murphy were let out on bail, but they placed them under intense surveillance. On Saturday, February 22, Travis had asked police to contact his auntie to come and bring some personal personal items to the cell for him. She had suspicions that he was responsible for the killing of Anita Cobby and when contacted by police, she agreed to go and talk with him to see if he would admit to her that he'd done it. When asked by police why she would give up a relative, she said, No woman should go through what that lady did. Travers' auntie, she'd be named Miss X, was taken down to the cells and she spoke with Travers. She was scared and extremely nervous. When she came back, she was shocked. She told police that yes, it was him. They then asked her to go back down, but this time carrying a wire so they could get the confession on tape. She agreed got wired up with a microphone and tape recorder. They're gone, they're gone, it's all right. Come here, they're gone, I got your smokes. Did you get the blade? I can't, I couldn't see it. It wasn't on the bench. It was me best knife. Was it? I wanted to keep it. Did, did, I, I don't know how to put it. Did you have sex with her? Did you have sex with her? Yeah. Did you, did anyone else? All of them. All of them? John, come closer. Why did you have to stop her? 
Why'd you have to do that? Come here. Come close. Come close. We were all drunk and she's fucking seen all of us. What? She saw your faces? Yeah. And you knew? So what? The other said you had to do it. Oh yeah, they're just fucking... I said, she's got to be done. And they said... Who said it had to be done? You? All of us. You all agreed? Yeah. And they said, go on, Johnny, do your bit. So I just cut her. But that's not your thing, John. You haven't done that before, have you? No. Truthfully? No. Don't laugh, it's not funny. So during the conversation, he named three Murphy brothers, Les, Gary and Michael Murphy, plus Michael Murdoch. Now Miss X agreed to track down Michael Murdoch and with a wire tape what he had to say. He was at his mum's house and Miss X was able to get him on tape. Murdoch went on to corroborate what Travis had told Miss X in the cells and so police mounted raids to arrest the four perpetrators. Police were able to quickly arrest Murdoch and Les Murphy and the hunt was on for the remaining Murphys, Gary and Michael. On the 26th of February at around 10pm, the remaining Murphy brothers were arrested at a residence in Glenfield. Now I remember this day well, as earlier on I'd been riding my motorbike around Glenfield. Crowds massed at Blacktown Police Station where the five accused were being held and they were out for blood. Nooses were dropped from buildings, placards demanded castration and the death penalty. Graham Rosetta, Detective Sergeant of Blacktown Police, said in a recent interview that they should have been drowned at birth. Now I won't go into any great detail of the scum that perpetrated this shocking and depraved crime. I don't think they deserve the time of day. But I will go over their sordid lives briefly before I get into what they did that night to Anita. John Travers, the leader of the gang, he was 18 at the time of the killing. He'd been in and out of institutions since he was young, arrested for pot at 12, he was alcoholic at 14, and he had no parental guidance or control at all. When his father walked out in the family, his mother got so fucked up she couldn't shit or shower. Now, Travis had to steal to feed himself and his siblings, and he liked to kill animals. Now, trigger warning for about 30 seconds. Travis, he fucked sheep, pigs, goats, chickens and lambs. He'd been seen sodomizing a sheep. When he was about to orgasm, he pulled back its head and slit its throat. When he and his gang raped a girl in mid-1985, the victim reported it to police and they fled to Mandura, Western Australia. Most victims of Travis were so scared to ever report him to police. And as I told you before, this is the buck, you bastard buck, or I'll slit your throat, asshole. Regardless of his shit upbringing, he knew right from wrong. Michael, or Mick Murdoch, was the same age as Travis and worshipped the ground he walked on. Murdoch's mum hated Travis hanging around, as she knew it would end up in jail time. And yes, he was convicted with Travis smoking pot at 12. Murdoch's upbringing wasn't much better than Travis. 
33-year-old Michael Murphy was an escaped prisoner at the time of Anita's murder, having been on the run for six weeks. He was doing 25 years for 33 convictions of break, enter and steal, larceny and attempting to, to escape. Known throughout the western suburbs as someone to be avoided and had spent half his life in prison. Les and Gary Murphy were much the same as their older brother, Scum, with Gary fancying, fancying himself as a fighter and would have a few drinks and brawl whoever ticked him off. Les was the youngest and weediest of the litter. He had a big mouth and would get belted up because of it. Women despised him and it was said the only way he could get sex was to pay for it or take it by force. In fact, this little runt pissed himself when arrested by the cops. So there you go. Just a bunch of scum, bred by scum, who were probably bred by scum themselves. Now I'm sure there are plenty of listeners that had shit families and shit upbringings. That doesn't guarantee that the produce of that shitness is more shitness. But in this case, as Jim Lay from the Trailer Park Boys said, Shit moths, Randy. They started as shit larvae and they grew into shitter pillars. A whole pandemic of shitter pillars. There's so much more to say about these deviant thug scum but I think you get the idea. So, the full story finally comes out. This grubby gang of thieves and rapists were driving around in their stolen car, drunk and off their faces on drugs. The Murphys together outside of prison for a change. But just by shit luck, Anita was coming home to Blacktown at the same time these deviants were cruising the streets. It looks like all the phones at the train station were out of commission, probably vandalised. It was still early, really, as it was daylight savings time in New South Wales and probably had just become dark. So Anita took the fateful decision to walk home. On Newton Road, just at the Fitzsimmons walkway, which is a park area, the gang of five misfits saw an opportunity to indulge themselves and they grabbed Anita screaming off the street. She was seen by witnesses who would try to chase down the car she was in, but they lost sight of it. The gang drove to a petrol station nearby and used Anita's money to pay for petrol. They stripped her in the car and started raping her. They then drove to Reen Road, about a five-minute drive from Newton Road. Reen Road, as I said, is a secluded road between cow paddocks often used as a lover's lane, as it isn't lit by streetlights at all and it's out of sight of houses. Here the gang drag Anita out of the car and through a barbed wire fence. They take her about another 100 metres into the paddock. The witnesses that were looking for the car, they did see a Holden Park there and they did stop and try to see if anything was going on. But the gang of five hid in the dark and obviously prevented Anita from making any noise. The witnesses then took off after not seeing anything suspicious, because the model of Holden they were told to look for was different to the one parked there. The grubby scum then torture, rape and defile Anita over a period of hours. Bit of a trigger warning. Anita suffered extensive bruising on her head, breasts, face 
shoulders, groin, thighs and legs from persistent assaults from the gang. She also had lacerations on her hips, thighs and legs from the barbed wire. She had several cuts to her neck resulting in the severing of her ear and windpipe and she was nearly decapitated. She had defensive wounds on her hands from where Travis had been attacking her with his knife. Once they had their fill, they decided that they had to kill Anita as she'd seen their faces. Travis then took out his favourite knife and cut Anita's throat. They all went back to Travis's place where they burnt all of Anita's clothes and drank beer. They were all charged with murder and sexual assault and went to trial. On the 10th of June 1987, all five were found guilty of sexual assault and murder. On 16th of June, they were each sentenced in the Supreme Court of New South Wales to life imprisonment plus additional time without the possibility of parole. Justice Alan Maxwell described the crime as one of the most horrifying physical and sexual assaults. This was a calculated killing done in cold blood. The executive should grant the same degree of mercy they bestowed on their victim. Michael Murphy died of cancer in prison on the 21st of February 2019 at the age of 66. The other four are still inside. Anita's parents lobbied for tougher sentencing and truth in sentencing, and they were successful. They also helped start the Homicide Victim Support Group that helps families deal with these types of horrific crimes. Sadly, Anita's father, Gary Lynch, died on the 14th of September 2008, aged 90, suffering from Alzheimer's. Her mother, Grace, died of lung cancer in 2013 at the age of 88. Anita's husband changed his name back to John Cobby and has got his life back on track. A park in Sullivan Street, Blacktown, was named Anita Cobby Reserve in remembrance of Anita. Okay, Islanders. Well, that was a bit of a tough one. Very similar to the Janine Balding and Lee Lee cases. It just makes me sick how these nothings, just a gang of scum nothings, raping, thieving nothings, can take someone's life in such a deviant and horrific manner that they had the mental capacity to come up with what they did and do it without revulsion. That these shit stains of society, the only impact they will have in their grabby little lives was take the life of someone so vibrant with so much to give. Now before we go, just a shout out to the friends and families of the four Melbourne police officers that were killed recently while on duty. Two officers had pulled over a speeding Porsche and the driver allegedly returned a positive for drugs. They called for backup and two other officers attended the scene. While dealing with the incident, a truck veered to the side of the road killing all four officers. Leading Senior Constable Lynette Taylor, Senior Constable Kevin King, and Constables Glenn Humphreys and Joss Presney, they died at the scene. Now I will bring you more on this as it unfolds or court cases are complete. It will bring on the rage like you will never know. It is a full episode for sure 
and I want to be able to bring it to you without keep saying alleged. So we get to the patrons and thanks to all my past, present and new patrons for your financial support. It does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. And this week we've got Christina Massarella. Thank you all so much. It is very much appreciated. To get to Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal as Misty Mullins did this week. Thank you so much, Misty. The PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com. But support yourself before you support the island, especially in these times. I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble. So if you want some newer, the new Redbubble stuff, go and search for True Crime Island on there. I probably will get everything off its Threadless across the Redbubble. We'll see how we go. You can also support the show, and this is what I really like, rating and reviewing, and also by sharing it with your friends and family. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Go and have a look. Now, don't forget, we've got the YouTube channel as well. So, we're just starting up. I think we've got six. I think this this will be the seventh episode. Starting to get a bit of a build-up there before I really push it and uh, see how we go. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Camber. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fat, London.